0: What's the
1: time hello everybody and welcome to the illiteracy podcast I'm your host Tim Benson a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute a national free market think tank and this is episode 100. 20 something of the podcast i'm never good with what number we're actually on uh so no not a new podcast anymore but for those of you just tuning in for the first time just checking us out for the first time basically what we do here on the podcast is i invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published on something we are a topic or a person or a thing or a concept that uh, we think uh, you guys would want to hear a conversation on And, uh, you know, hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you uh, get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Professor Stephen Walsh. And Professor Walsh is Emeritus Emeritus Professor of Music at Cardiff University. He has also worked as a music journalist, writing for The Times, The Daily Telegraph, and The Financial Times, among others, before becoming deputy music critic at The Observer, and he has also been a frequent broadcaster for the BBC on all things classical music. His books include uh, Mussorgsky and His Circle, A Russian Musical Adventure, uh, Debussy, A Painter in Sound, and a two-volume biography of Igor Stravinsky, Stravinsky, A Creative Spring, 1882-1934, to 1934 and Stravinsky, The Second Exile, France and America, 1934-1971. to 1971. Uh, Lastly, he is the author of The Beloved Vision, A History of Nineteenth-Century Music, which was published last October by Pegasus Books, named one of the New Yorker's Books of the Year, and it is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Professor Walsh, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I, I appreciate it. Pleasure. Oh, no problem. So... I guess even before we start to the, get started with the book, um, might as well ask uh, How did you, uh, how did you get into classical music? Where did your love for it start? Was it something you uh, developed in childhood? Was it the influence of parents or family or something like that, or is it something you came to uh, as an adult? No, of... I know. no. I, my,
2: my mother taught me and my sister the piano, singing when we were about five. And then a little later, I joined a church choir. And so I, from being a child, I was able to play the piano, not brilliantly, but adequately. And, and I've sung a lot. And I've sung in church choirs. I, I had a choral award at Cambridge University and read music there as well. So it's really been at the center of my life ever since I was a little child. And still is, so, um, you know, quite a few decades later.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you listen to any uh, popular music at all? Uh, I mean, I know you were, you were at the age, you were, like, just at the right time uh, for, um, uh, you know, Swinging London and, uh, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. uh yeah. During the early, you know, mid-60s. Or were you uh, into any of that sort of music at all, or were you just uh, entirely... Ooh. Classical music
2: Well, I had my my sort of pop phase and all that um, when I was sort of teens, early twenties. But I wouldn't say that it was ever a big thing for Mm. me. I was. uh, I think I was. uh, I would be uh, see myself as a little victim of the swinging '60s. Really, (laughs) I think there were a lot of victims. Uh, It could come at a time of one's life when it drew attention to the fact that one wasn't a lot of those things mm-hmm. and couldn't do a lot of those things. Um and one might not have wanted to, but somehow the fact that they were all going on around them might have induced the vague feeling that one ought to be uh, joining in. And so I joined in on the fringe because mm-hmm. one could hardly not. But sure. I can't say I missed it when I left the fringe.
1: Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm something of uh i guess you call it a little more than a novice with classical music so uh i mean i enjoy classical music i listen to it i don't listen to it as much as i listen to um you know pop music so to say but um and i don't think i uh like i can tell it's weird like i can tell a uh a great piece of classical music like that's I mean that's, but that's pretty obvious. Like most people can do that, can just like listen to it and be like, okay, that's great. But I couldn't really tell you, like a, a bad piece of classical music, you know, like just something that's just uh, 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 utter rubbish, as the as you would say over there in uh, mm. in the UK. Uh, but so my, uh, I think I, I got into or my first real experiences with classical music um, probably for a lot of. American kids, uh, post-war, um, you know, was from Bugs Bunny cartoons, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, Rabbit of Seville and, uh, you know, What's Opera Doc, where, uh, uh, they lampoon all the, or lovingly lampoon all the, the Wagner operas. Well, listen,
2: I think any way in is fine, I think, (laughs) you know, there are a lot of ways in and uh plenty of ways out too but that's
1: uh, another matter. yeah i mean i can't i still to this day cannot hear ride of the valkyries without hearing elmer fudd you know saying kill the wabbit kill the wabbit you know um so anyway <laughs> um
0: <laughs> so okay.
1: yeah but uh uh but anyway so the book itself um what uh what made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? I know uh, the UK edition actually has a different title or a subtitle. Uh, over here in the states, it's the Beloved Vision: A History of Nineteenth Century Music, uh, but over there, it's the Beloved Vision: uh, Music in the Romantic Age. Um, so right. it's so it's really not uh, it's really a book on Romantic music. So what made you want to write this book?
2: Well. Um... I think it, it comes out of uh, out of the work I've done for many many years. You mentioned that I worked as a music critic for a lot of newspapers, and when you're a music critic, you you go to an awful lot of concerts and you hear an awful lot of music. Mainly, well, not mainly, but to some extent, on the surface, you, like all journalists, you have to appear to be an expert. You have to become an in, instant expert mm-hmm. on things. Sometimes there are things you know a good bit about, or something about. At other times, there really aren't. You have to bone up on them very quickly beforehand. Or even sometimes you don't, in which case you acquire a sort of technique for coping with a situation where you really don't know as much as you're supposed to. And that's that's journalism for you as a whole. But it means you cover a huge amount of ground. I then took a university job, as you also mentioned, for 30-something years. And I carried on doing music criticism at the time, um, sort of in bits and pieces. But I also had to, as a university teacher, get a bit further into a lot of things. And th- that was facilitated as well as required by the university. That is, mm-hmm. uh, one is expected to publish. And of course, if you're publishing, you, 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 you write about things you know a bit more about than when you're just writing a hack piece for a newspaper. So. Uh, I got into a number of things in a certain amount of depth and that I suppose in the end left me feeling that um, I would like to uh, be able to write a, a, a book that covered quite a lot of ground, but touching on a certain amount of depth mm. of, the, of the university kind. It's not, it's not, I hasten to add an academic book, but it it does to some extent build on both the range of information uh, of the journalistic kind and also a certain amount, the the going into a certain amount of depth on Mm -hmm. a certain number of things, um, which is what the university really encouraged when I was giving lectures on the subject and that sort of thing. And the 19th century was always a period that um, attracted me, both musically, of course, it's what we all hear most of Mm -hmm. in, in classical concerts, but for also for historical reasons to do with the the social and historical environment of it, and um, also as a background to some of those books you mentioned before that I wrote, especially the Stravinsky biography, because in order to write that, I had to find out quite a bit about his Russian background. That led to writing the book, that you mentioned, also on Mazorgsky. Um, mm-hmm. which I wrote after the Stravinsky book, and, and, and that was sort of fed from the Stravinsky background research. And so I got into the middle of the 19th century, and um, well, I, I found it difficult to get out of it. <laughs> That's why I wrote this book, really.
0: Uh, yeah. It
2: does sort of cover, it tries to cover the whole thing, um, in in a way. And the other thing it touches on that is relevant to what you said, you were talking about rubbish. And uh, I think it's an unfair term, actually. We all know that, all right, everybody, there there is in all music, there's a certain amount of junk. Mm -hmm. But there's a huge amount of classical music, as probably there is a pop as well, which simply nobody is interested in after the time it's written. Mm-hmm. And that that's certainly true of classical music, but that music forms a, a crucial context for the music we all know and love. And that's true of pop music as well, by the way, it's, uh, although pop music oh, sure. um, does sort of carry on with its clichés perhaps more than classical music has. But but the con- the, the, the concept's the same. That So I was very intrigued by the, the backgrounds to a lot of the music that we all knew very well uh, how the composers was they always knew much more music um, that we didn't know uh, from their own time and that often was what molded their own style and that, that intrigued me quite a lot mm-hmm. so that was really I think that was that was my frame of mind when I started writing that book okay
1: so uh, more than that what so, what exactly do we mean by romanticism, or you know, what uh, what was the romantic movement, and where does it well, <laughs> where does it where does it begin I, in European perfect. music, basically?
0: Okay, well, pretty,
1: pretty <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I mean, you could just you know, uh, uh, you you don't have to go. I mean, just. For context, what do, uh, what do we mean by yes. Well,
2: for, yeah. well have you have to put out, out of your head all the sort of the kind of, you know, chocolate advertisement sort of romanticism. Right. Like misty light, a very pretty girl sitting by a fire eating <laughs> eating chocolates that ought to make her fat, but don't for some reason. That's <laughs> not what I mean by romanticism. Sure, yeah. Um it, it was originally a literary movement in the 18th century, and it was a, it was a reaction against the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. The Enlightenment was a general movement in the 18th century, late eight, late 17th and 18th century, which um, argued that we could it was possible to um, to understand the world, to understand society, to create a society that was completely rational. Um, we could understand the human body. We could understand the universe. We, that this was all possible. And this rationalism, uh, a lot of people reacted against it, especially artists because mm. artists don't necessarily like to be understood quite in that kind of way. It makes them feel like, I don't know, um, soap powders or something. So they don't want to be an everyday phenomenon. They want to be special. Yeah. And I think that was true of eighteenth century composers as well, but and, and it did begin to emerge in eighteenth century music, but it started as a literary movement, and then it came to music a, a little later, and it took the form of a, a, an assertion of the individuality of the artist: "I am not your your measurable, rational being, the same as everybody else. I am very special, I am unique." you can't quite understand me. You may think you do, but you don't. Uh, and so on and so forth. It's it's things of that, it's things of that kind. And um, so Romanticism initially was a movement of individualism. And then it got caught up with the, with the revolutionary movement, especially the French. Is this playing bothering you?
1: No, no, it's fine. I okay.
2: think got caught up with the French revolutionary movement, uh, which, which wasn't specifically
1: about the individual uh, sorry I can't hear my uh, Uh, no
2: problem uh, Um, uh, the revolution was well it was uh, was uh, a movement of middle class intellectuals in fact but of course it got caught up with the crowd and was therefore a a, a mass movement of, of great violence but it was supported by a lot of the sorts of artists I'm talking about, who saw it as a route to freedom, breaking everything down, breaking down this rational society and creating a new movement in which the individual would have freedom and the old social order would disappear. So it, it got caught up with that as well. And the French Revolution came along just at the right time. And romanticism in music really emerged from that, I think. The first great figure was Beethoven, but There were intimations of it before that in Mozart, in late Mozart, for instance, especially in his operas. And um, even in one of Bach's sons, uh, one of Johann Sebastian Bach's sons, C.P.E. Bach, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, who was a little older than Mozart. And so it was beginning to emerge. But Beethoven was the great figure who really broke down all those uh, old formulae mm-hmm. and tr- tried to create something completely new i think and then beethoven created an environment for the 19th century which created all sorts of issues and problems and and uh, which you know, I, can't, I can't go into but they are, they are to some extent part of the subject matter of the book sure
1: yeah it seems like uh, speaking of <coughs> beethoven it seems like he or or so much of the of the music of this period is other composers sort of trying to come to terms with the, the Colossus that is Beethoven. Uh, He always, I don't know. This might just be uh, my feeling. I don't know if you feel the same way, but he always seems to be um, lurking in the shadows somewhere, (laughs) you know, throughout, throughout the rest of the century or throughout this period of, uh, yeah. music
2: that that's certainly true. Um, yeah, I mean the situation is it, it's a, it this is where it really gets interesting. It's true that Beethoven was that because he was such a great figure and he did break a lot of rules. He did create a lot of new uh, new contexts, new types of ways of writing, and etc. etc. He used the orchestra differently. He, his, his forms are much bigger and and, and so on. But curiously enough, I mean, he was essentially uh, an Enlightenment figure. He he wasn't actually um, he 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 didn't really um, see himself in this sort of individualistic light mm-hmm. that I'm talking about quite uh, in the the 19th century. I think he would have seen himself as a product of the 18th century, who was just going beyond. But um, uh, he did create, as you said, problems for for composers to come afterwards because he was such a colossus. But the other thing too to that's really interesting about this period and, and, and belongs more to the social context is that the revolution actually liberated the middle classes in all sorts of ways, mm-hmm. not to do with you know striding out onto the barricades, but just it changed their daily lives. Lives um, they had they. It, it created um, more situations where the middle classes were doing what we would now call professional work. Mm-hmm. They they earned more money, they had more leisure time. The, the middle class as we understand it today was, of course, began to emerge before the revolution, but it really came on after the revolution um, with the breakdown of the, the, the so-called ancien regime, the old regime, right. and these people, had money, and they had leisure. And so what did they do with their leisure? Well, music was one of the things they could do with their leisure. So they started buying musical instruments. And here there's another big thing, which is the the piano, which had Mm -hmm. been invented early in the 18th century, but not perfected until towards towards the end of the 18th century. It's quite a complicated machine. Um, And Eventually, it was beginning to be perfected. And this was an instrument you could buy, put in your house. And so people began to write music for it. But they wrote music not um, that, uh, necessarily in the, the great big classical forms, but a lot of small pieces, songs, small piano pieces, that um, could be enjoyed in the home by amateur, amateur musicians, amateur pianists, amateur singers. Mm-hmm. and. Um, so there was a huge market for, for this kind of not very difficult to understand classical music. And there's a huge repertoire of such music, which is now more or less forgotten. But then out of that came one or two composers who we certainly haven't forgotten. Of course, the, the greatest one is probably Schubert. Schubert wrote more than 600 songs,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: they're at the very center of his, of his work. And that was only enabled, that was a a, a kind of symptom of what I'm talking about, the the new middle class, the new kind of environment for music, the new market for music. So that's Mm -hmm. a a slightly different angle on romanticism from the the kind of Byronic thing of the the great poet lending his aid to the Greek rebellion, which is a completely different aspect of the whole thing.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about Schubert in just a second, but, uh, you mentioned the piano, the emergence of the, or the, uh, the emergence of the piano, um, not only as a, uh, as you were talking about an instrument, uh, that people could play in the home, um, but it emerges in this period as a, as a fully fledged uh, sort of concert instrument. Um, yeah. so what is, what is the impact of the piano, uh, as, uh, as, a, as the emergence of the piano as a concert instrument, what, what does that do uh, to the sort um, uh, of the orchestral pieces of this of this period?
2: Right. Well, <clears throat> that's that's uh, another important question. Um, the, the piano, it's it's one of those um, cart and horse or chicken and egg things. You never know quite which came first. Because of the middle class audience, which began to to grow, get bigger, and public concerts became more important than the sort of salon concerts that had had, um, predominated in the 18th century, although there had been public concerts, of course, plenty of them. But the the concert halls began to get bigger to accommodate these bigger audiences. The piano came along and could fill those bigger concert halls. and actually, most of the musical instruments were in, in, in some way strengthened or in like the violin, violin string instruments were strengthened a lot at that time and in various ways so that they could make more noise. And the the, the context of the big piano in a big concert hall seems to have created uh, a breed of piano virtuosos of whom the most famous was Liszt, but there were quite a lot more. Uh, and, and they were they were, they were kind of the the first travelling virtuosos. You know, they would really they'd give a concert in Paris, and of course not the next day in Berlin because it took them about five days to get from Paris to Berlin. But but they would be touring around, giving concerts all over the place, playing the most brilliant, spectacular things, often um, uh, of no great artistic merit, but just very show off sort of things doing brilliant things at the keyboard. Liszt was started off like that. As a child prodigy, he gave a, a concert that caused astonishment in Vienna when he was 10. Then he went to Paris and, and was regarded already as one of the best pianists in Europe. He quite rapidly became the best pianist in Europe. Uh, he got tired of it after a time. But this was the, in the 1820s, just after the Napoleonic Wars and the Revolutionary Period. And that was what emerged from it. So you've got the piano on the one hand, as a big kind of warhorse in the in, in the concert hall, uh, being um, shown off by these spectacular virtuosi, who, who attracted almost kind of pop type worship, um, with people people collected um, lists, c- cigarette butts, for example. And any well, you can imagine that so other things I wouldn't like to mention on a, on a family sure. program. <laughs> um, you know, um, uh, just anything that they could see had come from lists um, touched that he had touched or been on him in any way, and this was true of the other piano virtuosi as well. So that was that aspect. And on the other hand, you have this often upright pianos but sometimes grand pianos pianos, because people lived in slightly bigger houses than they often do today and um, so they might have a grand piano in their house Uh, it might not be a big one it might be what we now call a baby grand or a boudoir grand Mm -hmm. they made grand pianos of all sizes to accommodate these different types of house different types of, of buyer and really the the piano was in some ways, an icon of the whole period in that respect. It represented both aspects of of the beginning of the romantic era
1: mm-hmm. yeah, and another thing on the on the more on the commercial side of this thing too you talk about um is the massive importance of the explosion of music publishing and the market for printed music at. Uh, that's going to really start at the turn of the century with, um, uh, like I said, with the advent of the piano as a, sort of a you know household instrument. So this explosion in in uh, this market for printed music for uh, for sheets for scores, uh, this is going to change the way that, that these composers are uh, going to live and work and and in a sense in what they produce as well.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, my wife said something to me at that moment.
1: Could you just repeat that question? I lost the thread. Oh, sure, yeah. So um, you were talking about oh, the... Yeah, the, um, again, just on the commercial side of of the music scene of this period, um, you talk in the book about the, the, it said the importance, the huge importance of this explosion in music publishing and the market for printed music for... Uh, 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 for people it's for to use to to play at home on their yeah. you know on their yeah. pianos and or whatever instrument they're playing in their homes but yeah. uh this new market um is going to and i guess really just this new burgeoning middle class in general um that's this outgrowth of the industrial revolution and you know the the French Revolution all these things um it's going uh this is going to change the way that these composers uh how they live how they work and and in a sense what you know what they're going to write uh going forward mm. what they're going to compose
2: yes it yeah it it certainly did that it it meant also that their music got distributed much more mm-hmm. than it had done in the past um, not, I mean, there was nothing particularly new about music publication as such. It was a sheer quantity, and because of the quantity, it became a much more commercial project. As you said, it was it was more it was, music became cheaper. You could mm-hmm. buy, you could buy, uh, and and publishers were producing specifically cheap music, cheap editions for the home or for people who weren't necessarily wealthy. And these editions of course did get distributed quite widely, so people's music became known uh, more widely and that meant that there was more likely to be um, influence from one composer. A composer in Vienna might have more of an influence on music in London because his music was published and, and, and could be bought eventually in London. And as you say, also composers began to write with that in view, and so they were they were writing much more for that market than for individual performances necessarily. But in the eighteenth century, a composer might write um, a, a work and perform it, say, let's say a, a piano concerto or a harpsichord concerto, mm-hmm. and. Then he might um, then be asked to produce a flute concerto, um, and he might just adapt the article concerto um, for, for as a flute concerto, and no one would particularly know, because it, either the music wouldn't have been published, or if it had been published, very few people would have copies of it, and only in that place. So that was that was a difference. So so much more distrib- distribution, much wider influence and um, generally speaking more spread of Mm -hmm. music i think
1: yeah now more on the artistic side of that uh equation how things are changing in this period um in this romantic period the musical works are coming to be seen more and more as uh statements some sort of like personal statement by the composer and uh composition in this period uh sort of is going to slow down in response the uh, the amount of uh pieces that composers are going to uh share with the world <clears throat> excuse me is uh going to lessen considerably but the pieces are going to be coming uh becoming longer and more complex uh than in the past i would just uh, for example for listeners out there. So I'm thinking something like, say, uh, in the Baroque period, uh, someone like, uh, Bach, uh, I was looking at a, one of the sets of the complete works of, of Bach and, um, uh, just his, uh, his cantatas alone, uh, I think made up like 60 CDs worth of the, (laughs) of the, uh, of, the, of his, you know, complete musical work. So just 60 CDs worth yeah. of cantatas alone. And, you know, uh, many of these composers uh, uh, of the 19th century aren't going to produce, you know, that amount of music uh, period over the course of their lives, let alone just one subset of, of mm, music, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: And that well, uh, this is a very good point, of course, because... Um, And that doesn't only apply to cantatas, it applies to all sorts of types of music. Haydn wrote 104 symphonies, for Mm. example, and um, Mozart wrote 41, well, at least, and um, so on. So this was a symptom of the time. Um, As far as the cantatas were concerned, bits and pieces from one... Bit of Bach's music will turn up in another bit, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and, you know, one's constantly surprised listening to Bach cantatas to find, oh, that's a bit that's in the B minor mass, or surely that's one of the Brandenburg concertos, and and, you know, he was he could do that because he was having to use one of these things every week, and Mm -hmm. naturally he didn't want to write, you know, didn't want to write half an hour of music every week of his life, so he very often adapted uh, trans trans transported from one work to another, bits and pieces. But the other point you made is absolutely right, that the, that in the 19th century, because of this sense of the individuality of the work, um, composers were much more likely to be making what they saw as a statement about, about music. It might be that the piece would be more complex or on a bigger scale, but even if it wasn't, they would they would see it as, as some kind of a statement of their own feelings. Schumann, for example, read a lot of short pieces, some of which he compiled into very successful large-scale works of a lot of short pieces. And they are expressions of little kind of intimate details of his own life, um, not in a programmatic sense, but in a psychological sense. And we know that because he tells us so, and it, and it is true. So even on the small scale stuff, it's something that is expressing me at that moment. So I'm not going to then stick that same piece in some other context um, because somebody might say, well, I thought that was you at that moment. It can't be you at this moment as well if you know if you want to be taken really seriously in that way. Of course, that's a rather extreme statement, but, but there's a general tendency in that direction. And the result is they write far fewer big-scale works, because the big-scale work is the ultimate expression of your individuality and your existential being. But the most famous example of that is Brahms, who mm-hmm. composing in, well, he was born in 1833, composing in the 1860s. He found it impossible to write a symphony going back this is going back to beethoven he said he actually said that he found it impossible because he always felt beethoven was sort of leaning over his shoulder or stalking behind him or something Mm -hmm. and how could how could he be expected to write a this i mean this is is, from haydn's point of view this would have been completely absurd i mean you know while he's writing his 99th symphony how could he brahms didn't produce a symphony until he was 43 and then he he only wrote four, in fact, altogether in his life. And um, they are all four very different works and very grand individual pieces. So that exactly sums up what you were talking about quite rightly, and which is a very key aspect of the Romantic Age.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, back to Schubert for a moment, because uh, you brought him up earlier. Uh, in the book, you compare Schubert to... A landscape painter and um and you say in the book he transformed that schubert transformed the entire concept of of the solo song uh, could you elaborate on that and just uh, tell us why uh, schubert is so uh, so important so uh, uh, so influential a figure
2: yeah um. Well, the solo song in the 18th century had mostly been quite a simple affair um, of the kind that perhaps you might call it an an ordinary kind of drawing-room song, or like some of the sort of kind of popular music of of the 1950s before um, Beatles and the uh, Rolling Stones and so on came along. Mm -hmm. Um, A fairly simple... Straightforward, several verses of the same music, rather, rather predictable form, um, not very complicated accompaniment, and in fact, possibly nothing but just a few chords or the right hand of the, of the harpsichord, it might be, or at the end of the century, it might be the piano. This is the 18th century I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Um, the piano might accompany the voice, copy of double. Vocal melody, but it wouldn't do much more than that. Um, now with Schubert, it becomes he begins to try to um, realize the full meaning of of poetry. He often sets great poetry, not always, but but a lot of the time, he sets a great deal of uh, po- poems by uh, Johann Goethe, who's the greatest German poet of the day, and um, and really Goethe hated schubert 's music <laughs> he thought <told> it <laughs> and in fact this, that is that is very symptomatic because the point was that Schubert transformed this poetry using the piano, this new instrument. the piano contributes to the the song in realizing the deeper meanings of the poems, and so schubert's songs sometimes become much richer in in terms of maybe the harmony or the melody or sometimes also very complex in form so that they become more like almost like a a sort of almost quasi-symphonic kind of form on a small scale following the trajectory the meaning of the poetry and with the piano contributing the piano parts become much more complicated often there are important piano introductions sometimes there are important piano conclusions after the voice has stopped or there are piano interludes and altogether the piano part becomes much more important not just a sort of support for the voice but a, a contributor so schubert's songs are real duets actually between the voice and the piano and um they're on all some on a very quite small scale um he he really invented the idea of the of the song cycle on a large scale as um, his winter journey is um, a, a cycle of uh, 24 songs or something like that most of them quite short but adding up to a totality and uh, of a very profound kind so in a sense he, he, he took the, the concept of the voice with an accompaniment by the scruff of the neck mm. and made it do um, things that I think very few people had even thought, even thought of before. He mm. um, just enriched it in scale, content, and the, the depth of meaning. Really, I mean, there's no question. I mean, he wrote more than six, six hundred songs. No one before him had done it. That sort. it wasn't. <laughs> sorry, <coughs> it wasn't regarded as an important form it was it was something that you did in your spare time yeah. but he really made it central it's not all he wrote he wrote yeah. a lot about the music as well but, oh
1: yeah, but, he wrote symphonies and uh yeah, offers, he, yeah sacred music i mean yeah 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 and it's um yeah it was to say it's and he's one of those uh well thank thank god he wrote as much as he did because <laughs> uh he was one of those uh guys like mozart who died very very young. He was only 30 yeah. 31 I believe and mozart was 34, right, 35. Yeah. So, I mean, you listen to schubert and you I don't know, I've always when I listen to schubert uh, beyond just you know thinking about the music itself, I you know think like, man, you know, what what could this person have done if he had if he had been given the opportunity to live a full life you know he like lived, lived well at 60 yeah yeah well, I mean, what 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 could he have done to to music i mean how much more could he have influenced My things goggles. i mean it's yeah. yeah. just
2: one of those i mean impossible what is questions um uh I just don't know. I mean of course it's ridiculous to talk about Schubert's late works as if he knew he was gonna <laughs> right, die. Right, right. Um maybe maybe God knew he was gonna die, but I don't think Schubert did. Um at least not until the last year yeah, of I his mean, life. I mean it's hard it's was, hard hard to
1: call them your your late works when you're like, you know, twenty nine. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah,
2: there is a change. Curiously there is a change in the last two or three years of his life. And some of his late songs, one particular cycle, it's not really a cycle; it's a collection put together by publishers after his death but is the last few songs he wrote was published under the title of Schwan which means "Swan song mm-hmm. and um these some of these songs are absolutely extraordinary they're not actually beautiful in the standard Schubertian sense of you know a lovely tune with beautifully rich harmonic accompaniment. they're much more austere. <coughs> but <coughs> uh, sorry. No, no. Um they're much they're much more austere. But they seem to lead in new directions and, and uh, I think if he'd lived let's say let's be modest and say another five years, I think he would have produced something very new and not only in song, because he wrote quite a bit of chamber music in the last year or two of his life and um some of his extraordinary works. His last string quartet, um, a big string quintet for for, for five strings with two cellos. And um, and, uh, as well as the song cycle and a lot of other songs, and he was still writing away. um, And if if he'd gone on, he would, I'm sure, have been trying to adapt those different forms to new ways of thinking about music. Um, so I, I, I certainly think, and if it, I mean, God knows what he was if He lived to be 60. I, I mean, as I say, his mind boggles. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we can't be expected to know.
1: Yeah, right. Um, okay, <laughs> let's uh, shift gears again a little bit. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, nationalism and uh, the impact that idea is going to have on uh the music of this period where composers are going to begin uh or really sort of begin to composing with the a, a distinct sound that's going to represent their their home country and their home traditions you know uh yeah, the, yeah. you know the Sibelius with the finlandia you know, chopin with the mazurkas and the polonaises and List with the Hungarian Rhapsodies and you know uh, Wagner's operas, obviously, and uh, um, you know the Russian Five or the the New Russian School, the the mighty handful, yeah. whatever whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, and this creation yeah. of a uniquely Russian classical music. So, uh, how does this? Uh, uh, what's going to bring this nationalist feeling? Into the music, is it a uh, is it a result of what uh, the revolutions of eighteen forty eight? Is it something that happens sort of uh, sui generis? Uh, I mean, uh, uniquely from uh, from those revolutions? Uh, how does this all percolate and begin to start forming uh, these pieces?
2: Well, it's, with with nationalism, it's very important to get out of the the, the modern. Idea of nationalism as a mass movements of, 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 of rather an aggressive uh, level, um, mm-hmm. something some is not very respectable and, and so forth. It's, it's, of course, got a bad yeah, reputation. Nat- nat- nationalism has reasons. sort
1: of a, a dirty connotation to it now.
2: But we do, yes. No. We don't need to discuss the reasons they're well known. But in the actually. Uh, this whole thing began before the revolution in, the, in one or two works, um, particularly a, a German philosopher called Hader Johann hader who who argued that um, because, as as you probably know, uh, Europe at that time was a number of empires, and there was the Austria Austro-Hungarian Empire, or before the Napoleon, was called the Habsburg Empire, Mm -hmm. which actually included not only a lot of Germans, uh, but also a lot of Czechs, Slovaks, Slovenes, what we we came to think of as Yugoslavs, um, Poles, and and even some Ukrainians. Italians too? All parts of of this empire. And so there were there were many, many linguistic minorities, and Hader uh, said that this was before the French Revolution that these minorities should be looking for their own culture, looking into their own history, their own language, uh, and of course, by definition, their own music. He himself researched folk song, and so he saw this as an expression of the individuality. So it fitted again, it fitted into the romantic notion of asserting your own self against this rather grand totality that that tried to boss you around and, and keep you in order. Um and so after the revolution this began to happen and, and people began to take an interest and it it was for quite a long time, it was very difficult for them to assert themselves properly. The Germans were very dominant in middle Europe, and especially in music, of course. So it was quite a problem. The Russians eventually decided that, that um, this particular group that I wrote this book about, the so-called Mighty Handful, or Kuchka, um, they wanted to find a music that was specifically Russian, and they... Could only do that in their own minds by rejecting everything German, so they became very anti-German. Um, but they they did find ways of writing Russian music that sounds sounds Russian. They did create a special kind of music, and that was in sort of the 1860s. I would say that that began. The Czechs, similarly, um, around about the, the late 1850s when for various reasons to to do political reasons, the Austrians had to slightly um, release the national minorities, the the Czechs specifically, and they allowed the Czechs in 1859 or 60 to build what they called a provisional theatre, which allowed them to perform plays in their own language. And this brought into question the question of opera, which could we previously also not be performed in Czech. Mm-hmm. So uh, C- Czech language became a possible um, a possible vehicle, a possible medium. And so composers like Smetna, eventually Dvořák, and much later Janáček mm-hmm. became part of a completely separate tradition that was based on Czech Czech folk music or Check ways of thinking. Check language. Certainly, Janicek, for example, much later—I mean, near the turn of the century, I'm getting on for 1900—went out and collected examples of peasant speech uh, and and wrote down the, the actual the music of the speech, if you know what I mean.
0: Sure.
2: Um, so, uh, and and then used that in his own music in his own particular way. Um, so this kind of it was an it was a, a, a kind of individualization of art rather than this big international art of the eighteenth century where Bach and Handel and everyone in England everyone in Italy and sort vivaldi they, they in Italy were writing in roughly the same sort of style uh, more or less you know so that it's not always easy to tell which composer you're Listening to which right. country they they come from. I mean, obviously, experts can do that, but the, the ordinary listener, it might be, you know, it's possible to mistake Vivaldi for Bach or mm-hmm. vice versa. Uh, yeah. It's not possible to mistake Smetana for um, who should we say Brahms?
1: Sure, absolutely, yeah. And nationalism, we say at at the time, it, it means different things in different places. So, uh, in Germany or in in non Habsburg Germany, let's say it means you know, unification, but uh, uh, in the Habsburg Empire, obviously nationalism means dissolution or you know and the same to, to yeah. a lesser extent's true in the in the Russian Empire uh, as well. Um so when yeah. you're talking about nationalism. I
2: think less than, yeah, less in the Russian Empire sure. because um, there was there was no Uh, There wasn't any kind of fissile context there, but certainly in the Austrian-Hungary Empire, it did did, um, mean that, basically. But in the case of Wagner, who you mentioned, quite rightly, he certainly was very interested in the German national tradition, and that had to do with, as you said, reunification. Because Germany in the early 19th century, up to 1870, was a, a, a... a kind of um,
1: work of principalities really a
2: patchwork of of different states and different um, principalities and dukedoms and this and that and um, it only became unified in 1870 and uh, Wagner was very pro-unification and wanted to explore all the things that these different parts of Germany had in common, which Mm. was again very natural he has a bad a bad press these days, obviously for his anti Semitism, which, which we don't like. Uh, but his nationalism as such was was definitely a positive thing. He was looking for the good things about German culture and history. And I think he found them. I mean he created a wonderful uh, wonderful art of his own. He's one of the one of the very great composers of the nineteenth century, no no question. And he built that on, on a rediscovered German traditions, mm-hmm. among other things.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, that's probably one of the... I mean, outside of all the, the human carnage and, and death and destruction, but, uh, uh, probably one of the worst uh, outcomes of the Second World War is, and maybe even the First World War, uh, but especially the Second World War, is uh, the, the Nazi... Uh, Sort of shadow hangs over the rest of of uh, German culture, um, oh,
0: uh, and uh, uh, the
1: yeah, and, and but I mean, there's but there's just uh, uh, German culture is so fascinating, and there's so many wonderful uh, uh, you know pieces. I mean, just uh, German folk traditions, German literature, German obviously German music, um, and. It's going to be sort of forever, unfortunately, forever tainted now by this, you know, this 12-year interregnum. Um,
2: yeah. Uh, well, Hitler gave, gave a bad name to any sure. music he liked, you see. I mean, he he, he liked Wagner. Wagner right, yeah. Wagner. He he liked Bruckner,
1: bad like Bruckner. Yeah, like but poor Wagner. Um, I mean, he, so, he yeah, he
2: yeah. didn't like Mendelssohn. Right. <laughs> <But> <laughs> of course not. As we know. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I think that's entirely the reason why Mendelssohn's music went out of fashion. But I'm delighted to say it's come back into fashion. Mm-hmm. So that that's good too. Are you? Are I mean, I, these things happen?
1: <laughs> yeah. Are you? a I I know there's a big. Uh, there's sort of like two sides. There's the Brahms. There's the Brahms contingent and the Wagner contingent. Are you a a Brahms guy or a Wagner guy? All right, fair enough. Okay. Um, Well, we're getting uh, fairly close to the end now, so I guess uh, a couple more questions before we end it. So, um, basically, you know, how and why did the did this romantic era in music end? Uh, Was it uh, just different? I mean, it's just uh, mm. the the march of time and just people just uh, moving on to different things I mean was it, was it the great war I mean that really killed it off you know uh, was it another no
2: I, I don't think it was the great war um, I think it was happening before that but I think it um, it's to do with this individuality I think um, one of the things about individuality was a search or ever more inward things. I, I think it, I, I came to feel, and I felt for a long time actually, that that artists, and especially romantic artists, don't like being understood very easily. Um, Schumann got a letter from somebody at some point saying they couldn't understand one of his early piano works called Papillon. It's its quite simple, I mean, you and I would have, have no difficulty, even if we'd never heard any of Schumann before. But at the time, it was thought odd. And Schumann said to somebody else, "Somebody's just told me they they can't understand Papillon. Good, he said. And I think that this is quite characteristic of art. They don't really want to be too readily understood. And as the 19th century went on, music, of course, did get more complicated. You said that earlier on, and it's true to some extent. but that is partly partly built into the nature of the developing styles, but it's partly because artists were constantly trying to get out of the reach of their they, because They wanted to be loved, they wanted to be listened to, but they didn't want to be too readily understood. And I think gradually it's got to the point where they were, almost forced to write music that that nobody could understand. They were forced to reject quite a lot of the linguistic conventions, Um, tonality being the the most famous one which Schoenberg rejected specifically in about 1908. Um, But music was moving that way. I mean, Schoenberg, when he decided that he was going to actually write, music that wasn't in a key, that didn't have, you know, a nice keynote that we could all grasp. He, he, I think he looked at all his previous music and he saw it was going that way. So he merely decided, well, if that's the way my music is going, I accept that and I will take it on that way. And so it happened in a natural kind of way up to the point, but it was already happening because of this natural tendency to constantly move ahead of of your audience to, so mm-hmm. that they don't don't grasp you through so, relics. I mean, so much music, one of the things I discovered, but which would be obvious, really, there was so much music written at all times, which everybody could understand perfectly well. You, you talked about rubbish early on. It's not rubbish. Right. A lot of it's perfectly good music. It's dull now. It seems to us quite dull. It doesn't tell us anything new. Or anything very exciting, but it's often well made and, um, and served a purpose in its day. I think one of the problems of our own day, which I touch on at the end of my book, is that writing this very difficult complex music became almost uh, almost a standard convention, so that the avant-garde, which used to be the bold one striding out ahead. You 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 had to be avant-garde, or you nobody took you seriously. From now. Uh, and the result was virtually well, nobody wrote music that anyone wanted to listen to, mm-hmm. which is one of the slight problems of our time, but it wasn't a problem of the 19th century.
0: Yeah, I it think...
2: emerges from it emerges from the 19th century. It's, it's yeah. sort of latent, but, <laughs> but
1: There wasn't a George Harrison that said uh, that the avant-garde is uh, is French for bullshit. <laughs> something like that yeah. <laughs> uh he did
2: say that. Yeah. yes well, you did yeah uh
1: do you th- uh, so do you think that's the um uh the main reason why we're uh why masterpieces are not uh, no longer being created on the on the scale that they were in the 19th century uh does it have anything does that have anything to do with um or you know pieces that become sort of like standard classics of the of the performing repertoire does that have anything to do with uh, i don't know the the has music become over institutionalized at all uh in these you know these public and private institutions across the united states and yeah. europe that sort of incubates and, uh, uh, does that have anything to do with it? Uh, do, uh, do you have any ideas why, uh, the 19th century, I mean, why we're not uh, able to sort of replicate that, uh, period, or is that period just sort of sui generis on its own? Um, any uh, thoughts on that?
2: Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> <Sorry. that> was, <laughs> it's a loaded question uh, uh, well, uh, um, I do I think that um it, a lot of modern music, modern classical as we call it music though it isn't um, is has become obsessed with matters of style and technique, and um that means there's a lot of very good composers or quite good composers, at any rate, who don't want to write in, in a, what we laughingly call an avant-garde style, um, uh, have been ignored. And have, uh, uh, you know, uh, institutions like the BBC here, and I don't know about American broadcasting stations, but uh, have, have tended to ignore that music as not being sufficiently up to date. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a a, sub, a topic of absolutely no interest to the ordinary listener. And so it becomes modern music has tended to become ghettoized, I think. I mm. think you're perhaps exaggerating when you say that there aren't any more, any masterpieces being well, written. No, the problem I'm is just saying that,
1: you know, there's not, uh, they're not just, it seems like they're not happening on the uh, the frequency that we yeah. saw in the in the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century.
2: Yes, I think, I think it's true. Um, and uh, I make the point in, in the final chapter of that book that, um, Schoenberg, for example, who undoubtedly was a, a brilliant composer, I mean, you know, um, admirable in many ways, wrote some marvelous things. Um, however, now we're, we're, what, uh, 72 years after his death, and, um, more than a hundred years, 115 years since he first wrote atonal music, and a hundred years almost exactly since he wrote first wrote music using the serial technique that he mm-hmm. developed. Um, and not a single work of his is, has entered the standard repertoire. His works are played, I'm not saying they're not played, but you couldn't say that any of them are in the standard repertoire, with the possible exception. Of an early string sextet, he wrote called Sapphires and Art, Transfigured Night, which he wrote in 1899. So it's not even a 20th century work. Mm. <clears throat> that that is reasonably standard piece. Otherwise, his works get occasional performances, but I, I really, I, 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 you can't say that they're in the, the, the standard repertoire at all. Now that's quite an achievement for a great composer <laughs> to have failed. To get any single important work of his into the repertoire, um, seventy-two years after his death. Yeah,
0: I've actually. I think
2: he's unique. Unique in the, I mean, he was the first of them. there have been some since, but he's I, the first. Of,
1: I, the I, did, I am. Uh, I've actually have seen one performance of a Schoenberg piece uh, live. It was mm. the. it was probably about ten years. ago. I forget which piece it was, but it was like the warm-up piece uh for the munich uh the munich symphony and they were doing a uh mozart's uh uh requiem uh with uh-huh. the main performance and they and they did uh schoenberg uh before that so i'm mm-hmm. i'm one of the the lucky few i guess who's <laughs> showing right. Schoenberg piece yeah. live
2: well hmm, hmm. well, i mean you know i don't know what it was
1: but uh, the... So, I I I no, can't work. Yeah, I can't remember it was it was a decade ago probably at this point. It was probably about like 2013, 2014, <laughs> something like that. And uh right. Yeah, down
2: at the Credo well, Center in West Beach. <laughs> I mean his work does get played. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but um but, you know, it's not it's not really there in the forefront at all. Oh, sure,
1: absolutely. No. Um okay. Well, we've gone uh uh, over an hour now, so uh I'll sort of wrap up with the the normal question I ask everybody, the exit question I ask everybody when uh when they come on here on the show and that's um, basically, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or uh you know, what's the one thing you want a reader to take away from having read it?
2: Uh oh, there's only one answer to that. I'd like them to go and listen to the music. <laughs> I mean that's the always the best compliment a writer on music or indeed on poetry or literature I'm sure I get is when people say you, may, you sent me straight back to the music. I think that's the that's, thing you know, I would want to feel that some anyone who read this book um, would go and start listening to much more music and to the music that I've talked about and and maybe discuss it with with uh, friends and and uh, maybe recommend books to their friends Do so
1: that nice. all right great well uh actually one more quick one before we go so do you have any uh, any uh composer any or any pieces that are sort of like your uh comfort food you know something you uh, sort of return to again and again and again uh you know your your favorite uh anything in particular
2: um well uh... A few. I mean I love Beethoven Quartet. I'm, at the moment I'm very obsessed with Schumann's early piano music. Um uh, works like the David's Spoonlett, so the dancers of the League of David is what that title means. Um Wagner's Master Singers. Um Verdi Four Star. No, I've I I've got quite a <laughs> quite a passion really of, of works that I that I love. I don't, I, I I don't play the game of of, um, favorite works on the whole because Mm -hmm. I find it changes practically every week. Sure. And I don't play the game of of who's the greatest. Oh, sure. Because I think that's um, uh, uh, a cul-de-sac. Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Okay, all right. Well, uh, before we go, anything else? other than the book, you wanna wanna plug anything you got coming up? You wanna mention uh, for people well, out there no. any new projects uh, or anything?
2: Mentioned the, you mentioned the other books I'd written, so um, I, I don't want to uh, uh, pudding, so.
0: <laughs> All right, great. Okay. <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah, great.
1: Uh, so, okay, again, the the name of the book is The Beloved Vision: A History of Nineteenth Century Music. Uh, very, very fascinating uh, account. Uh, look at this with uh, the music of this period very rich and luminous I mean I know you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, um, you know these things have to be somewhat academic but it definitely doesn't read uh, like in like an academic uh, text I mean it's uh, written for the general reader um, uh, it's a, the narrative has a very uh, crisp pace to it, it's, uh, and um, if you love classical music, uh, you're going to find, uh, uh, you know, if you're a, uh, a connoisseur of classical music, you're going to find many things to like in this mu- uh, in this book, and if you're sort of a novice uh, to cl- to classical music or sort of a dilettante with classical music, sort of like myself, I'd probably that's how I call myself sort of a dilettante with that sort of stuff. Um, there's going to be tons of things in here for you to learn and just uh the only problem like you said you're your uh the highest compliment is you know uh reading about something and then you know going to listen to it i think i found that was the hardest part of reading the book was stopping uh <laughs> having to you know keep stopping to go and That's and uh, listen to something and uh you know what i mean so it made reading the book uh, take a, a bit longer than normal books, but it's uh, but the diversions were uh, well worth it. So I highly, highly recommend uh, this book to everybody out there. Again, the name of the book is *The Beloved Vision: A History, a history of 19th Century Music*, and the author, uh, Professor Stephen Walsh. So, Professor Walsh, uh, thank you again so so much for uh, for coming on the podcast and talking about your book, and and thank you so much for uh, for writing this book and uh, sharing it with the world. And we appreciate it
2: well thank you thank you for inviting me and uh thank you for talking about the book and thank you for reading it which you obviously have done.
1: no no problem i mean, like uh if you're going to host a podcast about books the least you can do is uh <laughs> actually you know read the book of the person you're going to interview about it but uh, that's one of my pet peeves <laughs> with all these podcasts that don't <laughs> yeah. that don't yeah. you know <laughs> read the book or uh anyway but uh for another time anyway so again yes thank you uh, so so much and if you like this podcast Uh, Please uh, make sure and leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And also, if you have uh, any questions or comments or you have any books you'd like to see discussed on the podcast or anybody, uh, you know, any recommendations, anything like that, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our Twitter account for the for the podcast. You can also reach out to us there, so feel free to uh, look out for us. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books, so make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it, so uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.